0: Thank you very much to Rodney for leading to this point, point. and we thank the Lord for the way that he has been helping us, I think, to focus on the Lord Jesus. Uh, we are running a little tight for time, but just please ignore the clock. Okay, please ignore the clock. Bill Gouvere is a well-known figure in Scottish evangelicalism, at least over in the west of Scotland, and I recall... Uh, just as a knee-high lad hearing Bill preaching on several occasions and sharing his life story as a missionary. Bill was a missionary in the Democratic Republic of Congo through the tumultuous 1960s. And I still recall Bill's sobering accounts of persecution as well as his spectacular stories of conversions in that context. But what I most remember were the stories Bill told about various martyrdoms. Still etched in my mind particularly, is a story he told about the killing of an entire Christian family. All except the youngest girl were killed, and upon the death of her Christian parents, the little girl skipped. Down voluntarily into the crocodile infested waters, singing a song her parents had taught her about Jesus' love. It's a sobering reminder that in our generation, martyrdom is far from extinct. And yet, of course, Christian martyrdom is no new phenomenon. After all, the Founder of our faith, Jesus, was himself in many ways a martyr. While it's true in one sense Jesus laid down his life for the world, there's another sense in which he was set upon. He was arrested. He was condemned. He was flogged. He was spat upon. And he was taken out to a hill and he was nailed to a cross like a common criminal. And this was just the beginning. In the early stages of the early church, recorded in the first chapters of the book of Acts, even here, martyrdom meets Jesus' followers. Tonight, we come to the first Christian martyr, a man named Stephen. And tonight, for a few minutes, we're going to meditate On his life and death passion for the Lord Jesus Christ, who for Stephen was someone worth dying for. I wonder this evening, as I've been pondering this week, whether I'm even really, really, really living for Jesus, never mind willing to die for him. Would you turn again in your Bibles into Acts chapter 7? Acts chapter 7, as we're vamping up towards this event, Stephen is in this marathon sermon. He's been chronicling Israel's check of history before the Jewish high court. And he's moving to his conclusion, verse 44. Verse 44, our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, and he quotes from Isaiah, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Says the Lord. Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. Amen. Any living Christian will greatly benefit by reading the stories of the dying Christian. I would recommend to you, if you've never read, Fox's Book of Martyrs, a compendium of many of the early martyrdoms in the early centuries of the church. You could also read closer to home the Reformation in England or north of the border, a book called Scots Worthies which chronicles the bloody killing of Christians, even on our shores. There's also another riveting book that's recently come out. It's worth getting, note this down. By their blood, Christian martyrs of the 20th century, accounting some of the martyrdoms, even in recent years. But this evening, it's my privilege to open up with you A glorious and gritty account of martyrdom from the book of books. To rivet our attention on Acts chapter 6 and 7 and the beginning of chapter 8. And upon this man, Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And I'd like to consider him under three headings this evening. We're going to think about the man himself. Secondly, we're going to think about the message he proclaimed. And thirdly, We'll learn of the martyrdom he suffered because of it. So let's begin with the man. The man. Who was he? This individual who received the high honor of being first blood in the cause of Christ. I mean, it's a pretty prominent position by anyone's reckoning. To be the first post-resurrection, post-Pentecost, Birth of the church, Christian to be killed. Well, from Acts chapter 6 and 7, we learn a few key things about this man. We first of all learn, very simply, his name. His name was Stephen. Stephen, it may not be so clear to us, was a Greek name, not a Hebrew name. This means that he was almost certainly a convert to Christianity ...from a Greek background. He was known as one of the Grecian Jews, not the Hebraic Jews. We also learn, however, much more importantly, two other facts about Stephen. The first relates to his interior life, and the second relates to his exterior ministry. Did you notice the emphasis at the beginning of chapter 6 on Stephen's inner qualities... Verse 8 says, he was a man full of God's grace and power. If you go back to verse 5, it also adds that he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And if this wasn't commendable enough, as one of the seven, one of those seven men who were appointed by the apostles to distribute food to widows, he had to meet the criteria of verse 3 in this chapter, that is, He was full of the Spirit and wisdom. We're getting an x ray picture of Stephen's soul. And what does it show up? Well, three times in six verses, Stephen is described as being full of something. He's full of grace, he's full of power, he's full of faith, and he's full of wisdom. And he's full of God's spirit. Being filled has a sense of being controlled by something. And what Stephen was controlled by was grace. What Stephen was controlled by was complete and utter confidence, rock solid, in God. What, Peter, what Stephen was controlled by was the Holy Spirit, who not only indwelt, but inwardly drove this man forward. In this sense, Stephen was something of a rare jewel, both then and today. His most outstanding qualities were his internal qualities. Something worth pondering in the times in which we live. When the exterior exudes and protrudes. When the veneer and the facade are all important. In a day when all our friends and all our colleagues think that Image matters most, and yet God thinks image isn't all that matters. God thinks that what lies beneath is what's most important. We can fool most of the people most of the time, or all of the people all of the time, but God knows what's going on under the bonnet in our lives. God knows, and He assesses this evening what is happening in the reservoir of our souls. We can come for an hour and a half and we can put a face on things, a mask on things. What does God see, a little challenge this evening, as he looks into your soul? Full of what? Stephen was marked by his inner qualities and this naturally flowed over into a complementary aspect. Notice the second thing, his outer ministries. Interior graces and qualities, but also his outer ministries. These two, of course, are closely interconnected. If our interior life is in a mess, sooner or later the exterior ministry suffers. But the man or the woman who is full of God's spirit and full of God's grace and faith and power, these things will inevitably bubble up and spill over to bless those around us. That's what happened with Stephen. He wasn't just a worshipper in private. He was a worker in public. He wasn't just pious on the inside. He was practical on the outside. Stephen served. Stephen helped the poor. Verses 3 to 6. He did the work of a deacon. We learned about that last Sunday morning. At the end of verse 8. We also learned that he did the working of signs and wonders. Miracles. Probably healings. And what is more... Along with these two time-consuming, energy-sapping ministries, Stephen also had something of a word ministry. In verse 10, so much so, verse 10 records that his opponents could not stand up to his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. And Stephen was not one of the apostles, he was not one of the preachers who was set aside to proclaim God's word, and yet... He was willing to step up to the plate when required. He didn't say, as we may be prone to say, Well, I'm the practical guy. I'm the practical woman. No, when the opportunity arose, he gives the answer regarding the reason for the hope that he has. And the Spirit empowers him in an extraordinary way. Stephen served tables, but he also served spiritual food to spiritually starving souls. He was, from the inside out, an impressive expression of a spirit-filled life. And it didn't take long, then, for the devil to take notice. I'm reminded of the story of George Whitfield, the great English preacher. He was visiting the United States, and he went to the town of Boston, as it was at the time. And in Boston, there were some quite liberal Clergyman who didn't like Whitfield or his gospel. And when Whitfield arrived, this uh, clergyman met him in the street and he coldly remarked to him, he said, I'm so sorry to see you here, Mr. Whitfield. And Whitfield dryly replied, And so is the devil. Seems to me that this would be something that might be said of Stephen himself. Whenever a man or woman like Stephen possesses remarkable interior integrity, Whenever they're conducting an obviously spirit-driven word and deed ministry, the devil is very sorry to see us. And he quickly acts to do something about it through human agency. In verse 9, this pillar of a man, this eminent Christian, is opposed. We're told that members of the Jewish establishment, the synagogue of the freedmen, descendants of past Jewish slaves, they had their own synagogues, And they began to argue with Stephen and contend with him. And although no one could stand up to Stephen's wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke, it didn't stop these cowardly conspirators from engineering trouble. If they couldn't win by fair argument, they would win by foul. And they bring in these uh, pre-prepared witnesses with their doctored up stories. And they say, Stephen has spoken blasphemy against Moses. Stephen has spoken blasphemy against God. Stephen has spoken blasphemy against God's holy temple. Stephen is hauled before the Sanhedrin. They can't get him there quick enough. The Jewish high court of the day who had the power to execute those who had blasphemed. And as he stands before the judges, his life hangs in the balance at the turn of chapter 7. What would Stephen say? What would Stephen do? Well, let's turn secondly to the message. The message. Here's what Stephen did. Stephen opened his mouth and he preached a sermon. Just a little bit of advice. If you're ever in a situation, and some of you might be, where your back is against the wall and the persecution is right in your face and you're maybe under serious threat, here's what to do preach God's word, preach the gospel. He preached, in fact, the longest sermon recorded in Acts. And that's saying something. Fifty-two verses long. It's passionate. It's powerful. It's a little meandering as well. From a style point of view, you know. I remembered uh, the quote, I think it was attributed to Charles Jefferson. He said this, The curse of the pulpit is the superstition that a sermon is a work of art and not a piece of bread or meat. Stephen's sermon wasn't a work of art, but it was certainly a a huge hunk of meat, of bread. What spiritual food, what a banquet he lays out in this meaty sermon. It's a sermon that also didn't endear him to the Sanhedrin, because a lot of it was pointing the finger at them. There's two points as we would encapsulate them very briefly this evening. First of all, he says to these men, he says they've misunderstood God's presence. One accusation brought against Stephen was that he had blasphemed the temple. This probably was the twisting of Stephen's words. And yet, perhaps Stephen had said some things, as early Christians did, about the temple. About Jesus being the new temple of God. And so Stephen says, well, all right, let's talk temple. Let's talk about God's presence, because it seems to me from my observation that your understanding of the temple and the presence of God is all wrong. And what Stephen does is give them essentially a Bible study of the Old Testament. He gives them a little tour. And what he's really pointing out in this mainly is that in the past, God has presenced himself with his people in all sorts of places and in all sorts of situations. He's not only or always been the God of the temple in Jerusalem. Right? So, verse 2, God appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia. That's way east of Israel. Or take Joseph, Abraham's great-grandson. He was sold into slavery into Egypt. And notice what's affirmed in verse 9, but, this is as if it's surprising, God was with him. Where? Not in Jerusalem, but in Egypt. So God appears in Mesopotamia in the east, he appears uh, in Egypt in the west, and then you've got the story of Moses. And where did the Lord appear to Moses? Was it in the temple in Jerusalem? No. It was in the desert near Mount Sinai. And not only once, but twice, he points out that God appeared to Moses again at Sinai and he gave the law to him. Perhaps the greatest manifestation of God's presence in the whole of the Old Testament did not happen in Israel or in Jerusalem. Gets even more astonishing when you come to Joshua, verse 45. God's presence is housed in the tabernacle and the tabernacle was, of course, a portable tent. God's presence is Portable. Even by the time of David, and David was the greatest king of Israel, the temple wasn't built. No, it was the son of David, Solomon, who built the temple, eventually. What is the point? Well, the point becomes clear as we come to the quote from Isaiah, verse 48. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Answer, you can't build a house to contain God. Right? We need houses to live in. We do. God doesn't need a house. God's address is in heaven, and his footstool where he rests his feet is the earth and everything in it. Don't misunderstand what Stephen is saying. He's not saying that the temple in the Old Testament was unimportant. It was God's idea and God's command. But he is saying that they have vastly underestimated the extent of God's presence and God's work. They think that God is contained in this little box, this little house called the temple. And particularly in Jesus, we understand That God's presence is manifest in a whole new way. That Jesus has come. He is tabernacled among us. He is God with us. He is the new temple. And a few years after this, the temple in Jerusalem, of course, was destroyed. So that's the first thing. And then secondly, he goes on and he adds that they've rejected God's messengers as well. Not only did they misunderstand God's presence, they are also, in fact, persecutors of God's What Stephen suggests is that the Sanhedrin are part of a long line of those who persecute the prophets. He makes much hate out of the rejection of Moses by his contemporaries. Verse 39, but our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. And such a resistant spirit Stephen sees in the Sanhedrin themselves. Verse 51, who does he go on to address? You, stiff-necked people. He's speaking to the Jewish council with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet? You, strange that, isn't it? He includes them in this. You didn't persecute? Stephen can't think of any. He sees him as part of that persecuting line. And maybe you say, well, that seems a little bit unfair. But then Stephen gives the crucial bit of evidence that proves his point. Verse 52. They have even killed the righteous one himself. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. We sang earlier. He stood before the court. Jesus stood before the court. Which court? This court you. You betrayed him. That wasn't rhetoric. It was these same folks. The historical record confirms Mark 14:53. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, elders and teachers of the law, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they could not find any. So, what did they do? They brought forth some false witnesses. With doctored up stories. And what did they say? Well they accused Jesus of speaking against the temple. Sound familiar? And eventually they then charged Jesus with blasphemy. And they all quote condemned him as worthy of death. Yet before we censure them we remember of course that we are awfully like them. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. We just sang that. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. We murdered the Messiah, too, because of our sin. But praise God, Jesus died for our sins to forgive us of our unrighteousness. And he rose from the dead so that we can receive eternal life this evening. I wonder if you've taken that step and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ tonight. Well, Stephen trusted in a crucified Savior. And now he follows in the footsteps of this crucified Savior. And as it were, Stephen picks up his own cross and begins to follow Jesus to death itself. We've considered the man, we've considered the message, but let's look to what the story is really remembered for. The martyrdom. Paul and hearing Stephen's message the Sanhedrin, were furious, gnashed their teeth. Verse 54, they were outraged. Stephen, on the other hand, is a picture of camp. He began his sermon with his face shining like an angel, and he finishes his sermon and his life by gazing upwards to behold the glory of God. What Stephen saw? That Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. It's probably very significant, in fact, this reference twice in the text to Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. Why is that emphasized? Well, I think FF Bruce is probably right. He says, Stephen has been confessing Christ before men, and now he sees Christ confessing his servant before God. He knows that while he stands before a human, corrupt court being condemned, nevertheless, in the divine court, he is vindicated. And Jesus is pleading his case. However, this mention of the heavenly vision just intensifies the persecutor's rage. Covering their ears, yelling to the rooftops, they rush at him, they drag him out of the city, and they begin to stone him which was common Jewish practice from Old Testament law, for blasphemy. So reminiscent of the Lord Jesus himself, Stephen commits himself to God. What he said, first of all, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Isn't that beautiful? There's faith. And then in the throes of death itself, like Jesus, he prays for forgiveness on his enemies. What remarkable last words, do not hold this sin against them. Remember, there was an example of the gracious, faith-filled spirit that possessed Stephen. This was it, his last words. C.S. Lewis was once asked, Why do the righteous suffer? And Lewis replied, Why not? They're the only ones that can take him. That was so true of Stephen, wasn't it? He was astonishingly helped as he gave up his life. Unlike many of us, you see, Stephen did not prize a long life over a meaningful life. In 1948, famously, the Ockham martyr, Jim Elliot, wrote in his journal, I seek not a long life, but a full one, like you, Lord Jesus. Two years on, he wrote, I must not think it strange if God in youth. Take those whom I would have kept on earth till they were older. God is peopling eternity. And I must not restrict him to older men and women. Like Stephen, Jim Elliot and four colleagues were killed. January 8, 1956. There have been many before and since. Jesus, for such men and women, and I think this is hard for some of us even to grasp it perhaps tonight, has been someone worth being killed for. I ask myself sometimes at night, or as I come to read occasionally a part of Scripture like this, would I do the same? Would you? With the gun at your head? With the rope around your neck? With the stone poised? Probably none of us can answer that question. Certainly. But I'd like to think yes. But God knows. What I do think is this. Only only if you're living for Jesus full out now. Is there any hope that you would die for him and make the greatest sacrifice? At the beginning of this sermon, I mentioned the uh, country of Congo. There's another Bill that went there, and not Bill Gauvier, uh who's Glaswegian, but Bill McChesney. He was an American missionary. He went to the Congo in 1964. Before leaving for Africa, into the throes of the trouble, he wrote a poem. The poem was called My Choice. And this is heightened, as I read this to you in conclusion, this is heightened by the knowledge that soon after he was there he was dragged away, he was arrested and he was beaten to death 28 years old listen to his challenging words I want my breakfast served at 8 with ham and eggs upon the plate a well-broiled steak I'll eat at 1 and dine again when day is done I want an ultra-modern home and in each room a telephone soft carpets, too." upon the floors and pretty drapes to grace the doors. A cozy place of lovely things like easy chairs with inner springs and then I'll get a big TV. Of course, I'm careful what I see. I want my wardrobe too to be of neatest, finest quality with latest style in suit and vest. Why should not Christians have the best? But then the master I can hear. In no uncertain voice so clear, I bid you come and follow me, the lowly man of Galilee. Birds of the air have made their nest, and foxes in their holes find rest, but I can offer you no bed. No place have I to lay my head. In shame I hung my head and cried. How can I spurn the crucified? Could I forget the way he went The sleepless nights and prayer he spent for forty days without a bite. Alone, he fasted day and night. Despised, rejected, on he went, and did not stop till veil he rent. A man of sorrows and of grief, no earthly friend to bring relief. Smitten by God, the prophet said, mocked, beaten, bruised. His blood ran red. If he be God. And died for me. No sacrifice too great can be. For me a mortal man to make. I do it all for Jesus' sake. Yes I will tread the path he trod. No other way will please my God. Henceforth this my choice shall be. My choice for all. Eternity. Let's pray. Father, meet us in these moments through this remarkable story. Help us not just to be touched emotionally, though do that. But Father, help us to see the the truth, Lord, of what you demand of us, of what you expect of us, As your disciples, it's a costly way. Help each of us tonight to freshly count the cost. Help us to embrace, Lord, some of the pain we've maybe experienced this week. For being a Christian, for serving you. And we get kicked in the teeth. And help us, Lord, to give this week to you and our future. We ask this in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen.